Thank you, Matt and Megan. And again, I want to echo all that's been said thus far with good morning. And if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn, please, to the book of Habakkuk. We will be in chapter 3. I think one of the reasons I love the little book of Habakkuk so much is that it is such a quick, efficient treatment of someone who does believe in God, but who goes through a pretty profound change in what they believe about God. And I know from my own personal testimony, as often the person who leads in preaching, who leads in the liturgy that we do as a church, I'm often the one who is most profoundly impacted by the time spent in God's Word. Now, to give a quick illustration for this, there's nothing quite like student ministry to produce all kinds of illustrations for biblical interpretation. I remember multiple occasions when we would be in some sort of student ministry context, either in a youth group or a, a camp or a retreat or whatever it might be. And usually by the end of the week or weekend that we would spend together as a, an attempt to try to draw the students together, we would sit them in a circle. And the idea was to have a circle of affirmation in which they were going around the circle and they were telling each other nice things, giving encouragements and affirmations that, hey, here's what I like about you. Here's what I see in you. Here's what I saw that you did. And invariably, it was really incredible. Every time I ever did an exercise like this, the responses usually went like this. Hey, I think you're great because there's that one time that that thing happened to me and you were there for me and you'll always be there for me. Okay, next. Hey, I, I really think you're great because I know that you would never like leave me and you would never say bad things about me and thank you for being cool to me. The next person, hey, I'm so thankful because you've always made me laugh and when I cried, man, you understood and you didn't try to fix it. You were like there for me. And it really began to shine a light on the fact that, gosh, most of us tend to view the value of others by what they do for us, mm. which is convicting. Because what if that's how I actually interpret God? I only view God in so much as I perceive he's doing for me. And if I don't think that God's actually doing enough for me by my perception, then perhaps I don't think all that highly of God. See, what we encounter with this man, Habakkuk, somewhere in 605 BC, we think he's a Levitical priest, a Levite, working in the temple in ministerial worship service of God. But it's pretty clear that Habakkuk's interpretation of God goes only so far as what he perceives God doing for him. God, we've got a problem here. Things aren't going so well. Where are you? How long must I endure this wickedness? What's going on? I thought you were good. God answers him in chapter two. Oh, I'm going to do something. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. The Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to be my instruments of justice. Habakkuk says, I thought you were good. How can you raise up something awful to address something that's not quite as awful? God answers Habakkuk and essentially says, I am the Lord God. I am Yahweh. I am good regardless of what you think. And so we start with a man named Habakkuk who really inferred God's goodness, only restricted to how God treated Habakkuk. 
But by the end of this little three-chapter book, we're going to see Habakkuk go full circle. And his proclamation is our big idea for the morning. It goes like this. God is good all the time. Now we're going to have Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 to 19, read by Ashley Barrero. Ashley? All right, so this is Habakkuk 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shagayanoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, and looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of God. Amen. Thank you, Ashley. And I should point out that the word of God that Ashley just read in her version was about four-point font. I'm not sure how she was actually able to read that, but kudos to her and young eyes. Well, this is Habakkuk chapter 3. After Habakkuk records a lengthy dirge in which God says, I'm going to pour out judgment on those who will judge you, Habakkuk interestingly makes no response. He merely responds with praise. He does not answer God's actual assertion of what he's going to do. And so chapter three can really be broken up into three sections. The first two verses are Habakkuk's prayer for praise. 
And then verses 3 all the way through 15 is just Habakkuk's summation of God's majesty. So a prayer for mercy. Then we have the presence of his majesty. And then finally, verses 16 to 19, Habakkuk's peace in ministry. Now I'll tell you, just in the interest of time, I'm going to walk through the first 15 verses very, very quickly. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time on the very end of this chapter and therefore in this book. So Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Habakkuk says, a prayer of Habakkuk. Again, he calls himself the prophet, according to Shigianoth. We have no idea what that means. There's about a hundred different interpretations that are out there. Some of them are awesome. Some of them are outlandish. More than likely, it just means a particular melody that those who worshiped at temple would have been familiar with, but we have no idea. I don't think there's any substantial doctrinal distinctive there. It's just some sort of psalmic uh, tune that they would have known and used. We know at the end of this chapter and book that Habakkuk probably was used to leading these people in some sort of singing or chant there at the temple. Verse 2, he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. I have heard the hearing of you. I have heard what you have said, and I am struck profoundly. Your work, O Lord, I do fear. You have put the fear of you in me, Habakkuk says. In the midst of the years, revive it. In time, God, would you act? My time is fleeting. My time is short. I've lost track of time. Perhaps some of you these last several weeks have had that experience where you have absolutely no what no idea what day it actually is. Well, Habakkuk saying, look, in this crazy time, Lord, work, do what you do. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And praise God, he does. In the midst of your wrath, I know that it's coming, but also give mercy. Do not deal out what is deserved. Give grace, give mercy. Verse three, Habakkuk's going to recount a whole episode of the exploits and the workings out of God. Now, we have a tendency to sort of yada, yada, yada over a lot of these place names, but these are actually significant. He says in verse 3, God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Now, again, when you see that little word, Selah, it is a psalmist's word that is intended to make you pause and to think and to reflect and to praise. Don't just plow ahead. We're going to this morning. But when you see Salah in the Psalms, I believe it occurs 71 times, you're supposed to stop and think what this means. Habakkuk is giving southern language. Timon and Paran, that's way down in the south, in the Negev, the mountainous region where the children of Israel first came when they left Egypt in the south. And the Lord came from there to rescue them. Now there's a new oppressor that will be coming from the north, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And God will again come from the south, Habakkuk says. So he's calling on that which God has done before, even with geographic specificity, to remind and encourage those people, his people, that God will do this again. He came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Salah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Habakkuk's now not just referring to God in terms of what God does for Habakkuk, but he is praising God for who God is, for what God is like. Now, that's a very instructive lesson for all of us. Verse 4, his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. Incidentally, that word rays, it's the same Hebrew word for horn, 
which is why sometimes in Renaissance art, you'll see some of the great heroes of the faith depicted as though they have horns. They're not evil people. When Michelangelo does the statue of Moses, he has horns, but it's because the same Hebrew word is for light. And so the idea is that there is light coming out of his head, not that he's actually a very terrible sinner. Moses was a bad man. Not at all. It's just an interpretation of the artist. And there he veiled his power. His power veils his glory. We see him acting in history, but never fully. Verse five, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. This God is the one who commands the forces of nature unto destruction and for judgment against those who would reject him. Very specific language here. Look what God did in Egypt. Habakkuk's going to do what most of the Old Testament writers do, refer back to that omega moment of the Old Testament where God takes his son, Israel, through death into life and into prosperity and blessing. Verse six, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. If the mountains, which were the strongest thing in the entire world, if they were blown away like dust, how much more so will the invading Chaldeans and Babylonians be dealt with in God's time? We can have certainty in what God will do because of what God has done and what he is like. Verse seven, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Again, this is referring to the lands of Edom in what is today Southern Jordan. If the mountains are blown away, how much more temporary are the tents of the enemies of Israel? Verse eight, he's gonna enter into a discussion about the created order. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? Was it creation's fault? No, but the sin of mankind has splashed all over the created order and the consequence is felt even by the created order so that, one day when Messiah returns, the trees will clap their hands, the mountains will bow down because even the created order will have been redeemed from the sin of mankind. Verse nine, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah, reflect. When God is active, it is not a thing to be trifled with or winked at. It is very, very serious and the whole earth will tremble. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hand on high. This is not how the earth responds to a human being, but the earth almost can't get away fast enough in the presence of a sovereign God. The sun and moon stood still in their place. Oh, it's not just the earth. It's the entire cosmic order. At the light of your arrows, as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nation's in anger. It looks like Babylon is all powerful. It will look like the Medes and Persians are all powerful. It will look like the Greeks are. It will look like the Romans are. <laughs> they are nations that rise and fall. Sovereign, everlasting God, you are the one who is powerful. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, of your Mashiach. It's the only time this is ever used here. And that word Mashiach never, ever refers to the nation Israel. It always has an individual person in mind. So even here, we see a foretaste of the gospel. For the anointed one will come and there will be salvation for him. 
for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. If you ever get wiped out thigh and neck, there's pretty much not much left of your strength. So when God moves against nation and earth, that's the net result. Verse 14, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. They thought they were strong, Lord God, but you are the strong one. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I am scared. God, I thought this about you. I thought you were just here to make me better, to do good things for me. But now I am rethinking my thinking. I am repenting. I used to think you merely existed for my good and I measured you according to my good. But now I am horrified at your glory, your grandeur, your splendor. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time here in verses 16 and following. Sorry, verses 17 and following. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. I want to talk about Habakkuk 3.17 because many of you know exactly what this is about. This sounds just like, a prophet from 2,600 years ago talking to some people 2,600 years ago. But we have to remember, Habakkuk is describing their entire economy. It's not just fruits and vegetables and livestock. This is their entire economic portfolio. Yes, there was coinage. Yes, there was common currency. But that was not where a person's wealth was found. It was found in what they could produce on their land. And this harkens back very specifically, 900 years earlier to Deuteronomy chapter 26, where God says, I will bless you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And when I do, these are the exact same things that God lists in Deuteronomy 26. You will bring these things to me at the temple, your first fruits, not the surplus, not the leftovers, the very first, the very best of what you have without any certainty that you're ever going to get any more. You're going to bring all of these things to me because it represents my goodness to you and you're going to lay it back down to me. Israel was known for what we call the seven species, all these different things, olives and dates and grapes and, and how they were known to have been the recipients of all of God's blessing. But now, Deuteronomy 26 says, you will know when you have all this blessing, you will bring it to me and you will rejoice. And in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse four, he says, you will present your basket of offering and then you, not the priest, you will proclaim, this is because of the goodness, the bounty, the blessing of God. This is how he has shown me good things. I rejoice in the name of the Lord. Now Habakkuk, 900 years later after Deuteronomy 26 is written, and he says here again in verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. If I have nothing with which to rejoice, to proclaim your goodness, <laughs> I will rejoice anyway, because I know who you are now. 
I know what you're like. I know what you're capable of. I know what you do. I have nothing with which to proclaim your goodness. I will proclaim it anyway, because my God, you really are good all the time. Not just to me, that's not my metric any longer. The metric of your goodness is you and your goodness. I don't know if you or I have ever actually gotten to that place, but I look at the life of Habakkuk in just three short chapters and things are about to get really bad. When he writes this letter, again, I believe it's 605 BC, the first exile is going to take place where Daniel and his friends are taken off and then another exile. And then finally in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple, carries off all of the wares and Israel is destroyed. Habakkuk says, my God is still good. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Despite all the other things that are going on, God, the Lord, he is my strength, not my assets, not my portfolio, not what I have accomplished or achieved or obtained. It is God who is my inheritance. He is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places and then he says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, because Habakkuk wants his story to be told and recounted to others as well, because he understands that just about everybody has too small a view of God. We don't measure God in terms of his goodness to us. God is good all the time. Let me just then land this, if I can, and give just a few points of practical implication or application. The first goes like this. Never interpret God in light of your circumstances. You see, Habakkuk was doing that at the beginning of chapter one. He was interpreting God in light of his circumstances. God, things are bad. Where are you? I thought you were the everlasting one. How long do I have to wait for you to get off of your sofa and do something? Never interpret God in light of your circumstances. We know that God loves us by what he does for us by all the good things he has given to us and to our families. God, I like you because you helped me pass my second grade test. God, I like you because you helped me get married. God, I like you because you helped me get this job. God, I like you because you keep me somewhat healthy. God, I like you because you didn't let me get in trouble when I got caught breaking the rules. God, thanks for all that stuff you do. I like you as long as you're keeping the good stuff coming my way. And we might never actually say that out loud, but functionally, that's how we assess our God. And so we think wrongly and way too small of our God. But no, this text, and from the personal example and experience of Habakkuk, is wanting us to understand that God is good all the time, regardless of the circumstances. You've heard it before, so have I will get a health report, someone was in the hospital and they came through it and they recovered and they'll say, God is good. And I wanna be very careful to not come across as snarky, but I say under my breath often, God is good regardless of what happens to this sweet sister or brother. God is good all the time, even when the days are evil. And we understand that right now, yes, the days are evil. There is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And some of you have lost all of your portfolio. No, not your livestock, but I know that oil prices are in the tank. We get that. But God is still good. Second point of application, glory in the goodness of God. This is what Habakkuk shows us in chapter three. Glory in the goodness of God, unrelated to how it means to you. Have you ever learned how to just give someone a compliment and somehow have it not be about you? 
It means laying aside thought of yourself, which is a very mature thing to have to learn to do. I like you because you are always so sweet. You have a, a, a demeanor about you that has nothing to do with me. You're just the kind of person that is always head on a swivel looking to meet the needs of somebody else. I like you because you're funny. Glory in the goodness of God. So how do we actually do that? Three very quick, practical, alliterative points of how we can glory in the goodness of God. Number one, remember, just like Habakkuk recounts the glory of God bringing Israel out of Egypt, remember biblically the things that God has done. Oh yes, he fed thousands. Oh yes, he ate with sinners and tax collectors. Oh yes, he did bring me a godly wife. Oh, he did give me health. Oh yes, he did associate me with this body of believers. Remember, that's how we glory in the goodness of God. And then we repeat is the second R. We remember and then we repeat. We study God's word. We pray. We spend time with the wise counsel of others and we discipline ourselves to recount the goodness and the glory of God and not just good to us. Look what God did for Lazarus, look how he raised the daughter of Jairus. Look how he gave me such a sweet time with my family. Those things are not just good to me, but he is good. Look at the created order. Blue skies, rainbows, green grass, amazing wildlife. He is good all the time. So we remember, we repeat, and then we rejoice. This is what Habakkuk says at the end of the chapter. How often do you rejoice how often do you spend time praising God simply for who he is and what he is like? God, I praise you for your omniscience, for your sovereignty. I praise you that there is no place in the created order, spiritual or material, that you are not sovereign, that you are not good. I just praise you for your holiness, that you are moving forward to set the world right and that you will. Now, I can tell you that none of those things are going to obliterate or eliminate your stresses, your anxieties. But what I can tell you is you will come out the other side of that writer and writer thinking about God and those things won't seem to matter nearly as much anymore. I was reminded this week and I've, I'll tell you I stole this shamelessly from Tim Keller who was writing about a missionary, an English missionary named Alan Gardner. And in 1851, Alan Gardner and a, a crew of people were sailing to go on mission, and they were trying to make their way around the southern tip of South America. When their ship capsized, it was wrecked, and they found themselves on a completely deserted island with no food to eat whatsoever. All he ever wanted to do was to be a missionary, to serve the Lord, to give the gospel. And yet here he finds himself with no resources, no supplies on this deserted island. And he kept a journal and he began to record as all those around him began to die. One at a time, they would die. One at a time, they would die. And finally, apparently, after his journal one day was found, he recorded in his journal as he lay dying. And he recorded, interestingly, Psalm 34, verse 10. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then as he's dying, looking around, surrounded by death, with literally no good thing, this is what he wrote. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Now, I don't know how he got there, 
but my prayer would be that for you and for me, that we would be so connected with God that no matter what circumstance is happening, people dying all around us, economic collapse, familial stress, relational disunity, anything that it might be, that we would be so overwhelmed with the goodness of God because that's what this world needs. God is good all the time.